you would please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be begin in verse 35 this morning. Before we do that, let me remind you, we are nearing the end of our series on the resurrection. We've got this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we'll uh, be uh, wrapping that up. But due to Mother's Day, we didn't, I didn't preach on it last week. And so we, between that and uh, some that are here that may not have uh, been part of this series leading up to this point, uh, allow me to just take a moment to catch us up on what we've covered so far. We began by showing that the resurrection is essential to the gospel message. Paul begins that in the first part of this chapter. And without Christ being raised from the dead, we find that there is no Christian faith. It is central, so central to Christian belief that if you take away the doctrine of the resurrection, all these other doctrines and beliefs that we have built up uh, is going to just crumble away. It begins to fall like dominoes. And so the, the resurrection is essential to the Christian gospel, the Christian faith. But Paul says Christ is indeed risen, and because Christ is resurrected, it guarantees our own resurrection. And the end goal of that is not for our glory, but for the glory of the Father, who he says will be all in all. But last time, we examined the implications of the resurrection for Christian living. If we believe in the resurrection, how does that impact our lives? Well, this morning, we turn to examine a new question that's related. What is the nature of the resurrection body. What does it look like? How is it the same? How is it different? But before we do that, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity we have to open your word together, to study what you have to say to us. And Lord God, I pray today that you would penetrate the hearts of each person here, God, that you would exalt the saints, that you would humble the sinner, and that you would empower the speaker. Lord God, you're Word says it will go out and it will not return void. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has not accepted Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord, that they would do so this morning. Lord God, be with us as we study. Open our hearts. Open our minds. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Let's begin in verse 35. Paul writes, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Foolish one, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. So first we see an analogy of the resurrection body. An analogy of the resurrection body. So up to this point, Paul has been responding to Gnostic Greek thought primarily. Uh, the Gnostics believed that the, to, the physical was evil, the spiritual was good, and so they sought, their goal was to allow the spirit to escape the physical body and to go to be in heaven with the spiritual God. 
So the idea of a physical resurrection seemed absurd. Why would you want to go back to something physical when you've reached the spiritual? That, that was their thought. And honestly, that's a lot of times Christian thought too. Why, why would we want to come back to earth because, and, and be humans when we could be spiritual and be something else? But Paul contends that Christ has indeed been raised. We've already seen that. Not just as a spirit, but with a physical resurrection. And now we turn to see what some Jewish rabbis had taught, some rabbinical beliefs to understand what's going on here. For some Jewish rabbis taught that there would indeed be a resurrection and denied wholly the spiritual aspect of it. They said that the body would be laid in the ground, the body would be asleep, and then at the end of time, there would be a resurrection, but the same body would be coming up. And so there would be no change. In fact, the Greek philosopher Celsus had heard this teaching and applied it to Christian understanding and said, why would you want that? The hope of the resurrection is the hope of worms, right? the hope of the dead. When I hear this teaching or I've picture this thought, I I picture zombie movies, right? You see the dead come up from the the grave, and they have no mind, their body is rotten, flesh is falling off, and it's just a disgusting picture because the, the corrupted body that was laid in the ground comes up still corrupted. So Paul wants to make clear the nature of the resurrected body is not a zombie, but is a resurrected, resurrection body. Now remember a couple of weeks ago, and and you can look back at this, it's just a verse ahead. In verse 34, he said that there are some who are ignorant about God in the church at Corinth. But they thought that they were wise. They thought that they had come up with this new argument that was going to trip Paul up and, and trip up the Christian gospel. What about this nature of this resurrection body? They thought they were wise, but Paul has this Loving word to speak to him, right? What, what does he say? You fools, foolish ones. You think you're wise, but really, you're a fool. You don't understand. See that They thought they were coming to trip Paul up with wisdom, but he says your understanding is foolish. And why is it foolish? Well, if you go back to Psalm 14 and verse 1, it says the fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. He says, if you're saying that there is no resurrection, you're saying there is no God. And that makes you a fool. So Paul seeks to correct their understanding by first using an analogy. And this analogy draws from ordinary experience, things that we normally see. And his goal is not an attempt to prove bodily resurrection, but to offer a way to understand how bodily resurrection is possible. And and before we go on, understand this. The bodily resurrection is essential to Christianity. And it is unique to Christianity. No other religion claims that their leader died and rose again. No one says Muhammad died and came up from the grave. No one says Buddha died and came up from the grave. Christianity is the only religion... It says Jesus died, was buried for three days, 
before being resurrected, raised by the power of God after three days in the tomb. So the, re- the Christian resurrection is essential, it's unique, and it does not entail the resurrection of dead corpses, but rather the transformation of a perishable body. And this is what Paul says of the seed. This is what the parable, the analogy of the seed shows us. The seed goes into the ground as one thing. It's the small thing, maybe it's hard, maybe it's round, and it goes into the ground. But what it produces does not look like that seed. What comes up out of the ground, you, you go, that's not a seed. That's not what that looks like. The seed is buried. It's placed in the ground. You know, I'm not a gardener, but for those who are, you know, you, you dig a hole and you place that seed inside and then you cover it with the earth and then you water it. And over time, something starts to come up out of the ground if you're a good gardener. Now, if, if you're like me, you sit there and you look and you look and you look and nothing ever comes up and you go, what is wrong? But for the good gardener, the seed is planted and something begins to sprout up out of the ground. And what was buried is transformed as it comes up. That, that little black seed that you put in the ground becomes a green stalk. And then it produces a green leaf. And in some cases, it produces beautiful colored flower petals. It looks different than the seed. What was buried is transformed when it rises from the ground. So Paul's purpose in the seed analogy is not to emphasize the necessity of death, but to rather is an illustration of this transformation. That the seed is buried, but then it is transformed as it comes up out of the ground. So there's a a continuity, and we're going to talk about that here in just a second, but there's also a transformation, a change that takes place. Now, if you're not convinced that there's a change that takes place over time, let me challenge you to do this. Go home, find some pictures when you were a kid, look at that really good, and then look in the mirror and see, do you think a transformation has taken place? There's a continuity, right? You know that that's you. You can see characteristics of you, but over time, things have changed. So Paul's saying, we put the seed in the ground and as it comes up, things about it change. The body that's laid in the ground does not just rise out of the ground in the same, but it is transformed by it. Yet, at the same time, there is a sameness, there is a, a continuity to it. And so let's look at verse 39 and see what it has to say here. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars, for one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, Sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now we're going to stop there and we're going to pick up in verse 44 in just a moment. But notice that there 
are some similarities, but there are also some differences in the resurrection body. Similarities and differences in the resurrection body. So Paul here is building on the analogy of the seed to show that God gives each kind of flesh or each body its own unique nature, its own unique glory is his word. Each has its own nature, and Paul is showing us that although there can be a dissolution, there can be a difference, there can still be a continuity, a, a sameness to it. So, good news, despite what I've heard all my life, you are not going to be what you eat. What you eat is converted in the digestive process, and it's broken down into proteins, it's broken down into sugars and, and carbohydrates, which are then absorbed into your being. So you're not what you eat, but rather what you eat is converted to make more of you. Now, for some of us, that's not great news because we go, there's already enough of me. I don't need more of me. I, I could use a little less of me. But there's also good news that no matter how much fried chicken you eat in the Fellowship Hall, you're not going to become a chicken. You're always going to be a human. The seed can only produce of its nature. If you plant an apple seed, what kind of a tree are you going to get? An apple tree. If you plant a cucumber seed, what kind of plant are you going to get? A cucumber plant. Right? There's a continuity. You're not going to plant an apple seed and get a pear tree. Or if you do, you got confused somewhere along the way. Guess what happens when you plant a human? What do you get? What do you get when you plant a human seed? Human, right? You're not going to get an angel, and I'm sorry to tell you this. You know, I'm sorry that you'll never get your angel wings because you're not an angel, no matter what your daddy told you when you were a kid. You won't become a god. You'll never be nothing more as far as a nature-wise than what you are right now. You will always be human. Yet despite this sameness, there is a great diversity in all of God's creation. If you look, I'm, I'm looking at all of you right now. Some of you look similar because you're related, but all of you look different. I can make out an individual in each of you. God created every person unique and different. Even identical twins have different personalities. So there's a difference between them. If you look up to the heavens, you see a diversity. There's this great sun that provides light and warmth to all the world and to all the solar system. And yet, there's the moon that reflects the light of the sun. Its glory helps us different. And then if you look at the stars, you know, for me, if I just look up at the sky, I just see a bunch of bright, twinkling lights. But he says, there, there is a scientist who said, if you look up at the stars, you'll find that they differ in glory. He wrote, like flowers, the stars have their own colors. When you look upward and you glance, all of them gleam white like frost crystals. But single out one, or single out another one, and as you observe it, you'll find a subtle spectrum of color in the stars. The quality of their light is determined by their temperatures, and, the, and their temperatures vary so in, if you look up in the December sky, you'll see Aldebaran, and it'll be a pale rose color. If you look at Rigel, it'll be bluish white. But if you look at 
Beetlejuice, it'll be an orange or a, a topaz yellow, and, and so on and so on. All the heavenly bodies vary in their distance from us, so that makes them look different. They vary in their temperature, and so they have different colors as we look at them. And so what is Paul saying here? What, what is his purpose for bringing this in? Well, he says God can make any kind of body he wants. He's not limited by his imagination. He's not limited to one kind of man and one kind of woman. We don't all look exactly the same. We don't all act exactly the same as it is. Why would we think that the body that we have after the resurrection has to be the same as the one before? He can make something new, something different. The body is a seed which is sown. But the resurrection body, although in continuity with the nature, will be different. And Paul shows four ways that they will be different. First of all, he says that the body that is sown is corrupted. Scripture tells us that there is no person who is righteous, no, not one. We have all been tainted by sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And even our good deeds are bad because even a good seed inside of a rotten apple is not good, right? Elsewhere in Corinthians, Paul says, a little yeast leavens the whole batch. So listen, you're broken, I'm broken, we're all broken. There's not a single one of us that is perfect as much as we might want to try to present ourselves as perfect. We're all corrupted by sin. But the resurrection body will be different. The resurrection body will be perfect. It will be raised incorruptible. Without sin, without corruption. So guess what, ladies? In heaven and at the, in the new earth, you're not going to need a mirror. Right? Because it'll be perfect all the time. The only reason you have a mirror is to fix something that's messed up. But when you're perfect, you don't need it. Paul says this present body is buried in dishonor. Listen, there, there is no honor in death. Some cultures will, will say that that I want to die an honorable death, death is by its nature dishonorable. It was not the way it should have been. Death is a curse upon creation. It should never have existed at all. But God created humanity as, as perfect and eternal, and he gave Adam two trees. He said, there's a tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And which one did Adam choose? went for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so, he brought corruption and he brought death into the world. So there's no honor in death. We're all laid down in dishonor because death is unnatural. Death is a condition of the fall. But the resurrection body, Paul says, will be raised in glory. This new life brings with it glory because it will not be tainted by sin and it will not be having to suffer death. There will be no dishonor. There will be victory over the curse and dishonor of death. Next he says the body is weak. Now the body breaks down over time. Some of you know that even better than I do, but we all feel it. We, we all have surgeries. We all have illnesses. We all have injuries. We all have pain. 
our bodies have been weakened by the curse of sin. But one day there will be no more sickness, there will be no more pain, our bodies will be powerful as God designed them to be, and we'll be able to do what all we need to do for all eternity, which is be on our knees in worship to the Lord, right? You don't have to worry when you're on your knees in worship about your knees getting pain and tired, and you've got to stand up or your knees are going to lock up, because that's not going to be a problem anymore. Your body will be powerful. Because God will make it transformed. And the final difference here is kind of a summary statement. But I think we need a little more explanation. Paul goes into a few more details about this in the following verses. But before we get there, uh, let's talk about this. He says, it's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. What does that mean? What is the difference between natural and spiritual? Now, when we read this, we tend to immediately think, well, that means physical. We're going to be physically buried, but we're going to rise as an immaterial thing. Right? Because spiritual things are immaterial versus material. But the terms natural and spiritual in this context, that's not what they mean. They don't mean material and immaterial, but rather describe the present earthly body and the future transformed, resurrected body in the image of Christ. See, the spiritual body is a true body. It is a material body, but it's a transformed one, as I've already been saying. These two bodies are contrasted not physical versus spiritual, but rather soul-oriented. The the Greek word there is psychicon versus spirit-oriented. Pneumaticon. Pneuma meaning spirit. So there's a difference between the soul-oriented and the spirit-oriented. And when I say spirit, that's with a capital S. Right? The Holy Spirit. So it's best to take the term spiritual not as immaterial, but as a reference to the Holy Spirit. What is the difference between the natural person and the spiritual person? All throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul's been writing about The natural man lives by his own wisdom, but the spiritual man lives by the word of God. It's not saying that we're going to be laid down as a material being or brought up as a non-material, immaterial being. The believer's resurrected body will be spiritual because it will be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ himself was raised by the Spirit, according to Romans 8. And in the same way, the bodies of believers will be resurrected in the power of the Spirit. Well, the meaning of natural body and spiritual body is worked out in further detail as Paul goes in the next few verses and looks at this Adam and Christ typology. Look with me at verse number 44. Part B. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the dust, or from the earth and made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. Like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, 
we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. So we see the prototype of the resurrection body. The prototype of the resurrection body. Now, before creating a whole line of products, designers will often have a prototype built. And many years ago, I invested in a, in a concept of a, a cheap but fuel-efficient vehicle called an Elio. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you've not. Uh, it was getting quite a, a bit of attention at the time. It was like 2015, 2016. The goal was to make this vehicle, construct it for less than $8,000. So it was like $7,500. But it would get 84 miles per gallon. Right? Sounds great. Um, so they had this prototype model that they were touring with. And I, I saw this model. I thought, wow, if they're able to pull this off, this will be great. They said if you invest a little bit of money... We'll put you on the list so that you receive updates, and then as soon as uh, we've got the production going, you'll be one of the first ones able to purchase, and that $100 or whatever you put down counts toward your down payment. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll put in $100 uh, to get on the waiting list. Now, what I later found out was that prototype was using an engine that did not get 84 miles to the gallon. Uh, they hadn't yet come up with that combustion engine that would do that. And so the last I heard, they're still working on redesigning the engine, and that prototype was a failure. But Paul presents here a couple of prototypes in this last section. He says Adam was the first prototype. He was the first man. And so Paul takes Genesis as a, a literal and historical reality uh, of the story. Adam was the first created being. God formed the man from the dust of the earth, and the man received life from God. He breathed life into him. Now, we are all members of the line of Adam. We're all made of dust, and to dust we will return. That's the nature of ourselves. All who die before the Lord's coming will experience the, de the decay of the body. The body will break down and will return to the material from which God made us, the dust. And so we're all identified first with the natural Adam. But there is a second prototype, the last Adam, and rather than being a life-receiving being, Paul says this Adam was a life-giving, or is a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam was given life, but Jesus gives life. Adam sowed death, but Jesus sowed life. And we all receive the nature of Adam, but you have to choose to receive the nature of Christ. We're all born, but you can choose to be born again, to use term Jesus used. So we must understand that all humanity is marked by its relation to one of these two prototypes. Either you're fully in Adam or you're in Christ. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. The man of dust lives for the things of this world. He sees nothing past his time here. The natural man lives without hope. But the heavenly man, he says, like the heavenly man are those who are heavenly. For if you choose Jesus, then he says you receive the Holy Spirit. You choose to receive his life-giving spirit, and his Holy Spirit empowers us to live spiritual lives. So what is a spiritual life? Well, Paul talked about the moon having its own glory. The sun has his own glory. Here I'm using sun with an O, right? Jesus has his own glory, and our job is to be the moon, to reflect that glory if you are a spiritual being. 
who reflect the glory of the Son to the world. Now, this last verse here says, in the CSB says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. And most of the English translations I looked at translated in the future indicative sense, saying, this will happen. But, as I was studying this, I thought, this does not look to me like a solely future indicative use of this word. And so I began researching. I found that there was a lot of Greek scholars that also disagree. And they say, I think it should be subjunctive, which means the text reads not, we will, but let us bear the image of the man in heaven. And so by this translation, Paul concludes his section by exhorting his readers to prepare now for the future life that will come. Let us live, if we are spiritual, let us live in the nature that we will have in the future. Don't live a physical life, a natural life, if you're a spiritual being. Don't be without hope. Don't live like you're without hope. But live like you have the hope of the glory imperishable body, an incorruptible body, a powerful body, an exalted body, if you have a spiritual body. This time I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes.